Welcome to DLA Piper's At the Intersection of Science and Law podcast. In this episode, DLA Piper's Lucas Shomashinsky and Raymond Williams are joined by Michael King, Vice President and Associate General Counsel at Jazz Pharmaceuticals, to discuss the benefits of medical and science backgrounds when litigating matters for pharmaceutical and medical device companies. This is Ray Williams, and I was able to get two of my very good friends, colleagues, to join me on this podcast. For those that don't know, I am a senior counsel at DLA Piper and have been practicing pharmaceutical and medical device law and MDL class actions for close to 30 years now. What we want to talk about today is the interaction between the cases that we handle for pharmaceutical medical device companies and our backgrounds in terms of whether science is a necessity, how much does it help, and just overall, what is the link between those that do well (laughs) in the courtroom and the background that they come into these litigations with. So I want to introduce both Mike and Lucas to you. Mike, why don't you take it from here and tell people who you are? Sure. So Mike King, I've been practicing since, I guess, 2004. Started out at Reed Smith in Philadelphia trying pharmaceutical medical device product liability cases, some catastrophic personal injury work, commercial litigation. Did that for about eight years, then went in-house to Nova Nordisk for about another eight years. And then summer of 2020, jumped over to Jazz Pharmaceuticals. That's where I am now doing litigation, investigations, employment law, intellectual property, and privacy work. Lucas, why don't you introduce yourself? So Lucas Przemyszynski, I'm a physician first. I did medical school, then internal medicine residency before I went back to law school. I've been practicing since 2007, so just about 14 years. Started off at Alston and Bird in Atlanta. When I got into practice, I thought what I was going to do is defend medical malpractice actions. And that rapidly evolved probably in the in three to four months from the time I <laughs> got started into working on first pharmaceutical litigation and then more broadly, pharmaceutical medical device. About three years after I started, I moved over to DLA Piper in New York, and I've been there ever since. I'm a partner now, and I certainly do pharma and medical device litigation as my primary layered on top of that. It's a lot of investigations, FDA regulatory compliance type work, and general advice and counsel across the life sciences industry. Yeah, that's interesting, Lucas. One of the first discussion points was how did you get into the pharma world? Did the science make you do it, so to speak? (laughs) And for me, it really wasn't the science. It was just a partner in a firm when I was out in California who asked me if I wanted to do pharmaceutical and medical device work. I literally had no idea what it was. I was two years out of law school. And my response to him was, is it litigation? And he said it was. And lo and behold, some 30 years later, I'm handling pharmaceutical work. I don't have a background in the science. So I know sometimes that can be frustrating for you, Lucas, <laughs> when you're trying to explain things to me. But Mike, I would love to know, how did you get into the pharma world? It's a bit of a 
convoluted path, Ray. Yeah. So I started out undergrad in a civil engineering program. After that, I transferred into environmental science, and that's the Bachelor of Science degree I got in undergrad. From there, my wife was behind me by a year in college, so I decided to go to graduate school at Penn State in Harrisburg, and it was a Master of Science in Environmental Pollution Control, essentially industrial-level design of air pollution control systems, wastewater management, drinking water management, solid waste management, that kind of stuff. And as part of that program, I spent about two years stuck in a laboratory doing bench research. And by the time I was done with that, I knew I wanted absolutely nothing to do with that. <laughs> but part of the curriculum was the regulatory legal piece of things. You know, why were there requirements for the systems we were designing? And I was kind of into that. So I decided on a whim to go to law school. And when I was making my way through law school, I quickly found out there wasn't too much in the way of opportunity for environmental lawyers at the time. Mm -hmm. So wound up, fast forward to my third year, interviewing at Reed Smith in Philadelphia, who was in the throes of the diet drug litigation. And I guess the interviews went well and wound up accepting a job there. And yeah, it was all pretty much pharma work right out of the gate. And that's how I got to where I am now. So Lucas... Being, I joked about me being frustrating to you a little bit. <laughs> I know that times it can be frustrating to work with people who don't have a science background in this area. How important do you think it is to have a science background when handling these matters for the farmer companies and medical device companies? And we're talking about the mass tort, the MDLs cases, not necessarily the IP matters. Yeah. Right. It's a good question. I mean, look, I think I have two things to say broadly on that topic. Number one, you and I and Mike all know a number of partners and lawyers in this field who have no science background at all, who are absolutely exceptional litigators, exceptional pharma med device life sciences lawyers at a level that I think all of us aspire to and really respect. So, I think answer to that part A is I think you can be an exceptional life sciences pharma med device lawyer without that background. Mm -hmm. That's A. But B, I think it's an invaluable asset if you do have it. And I think it gives you a tremendous advantage in a lot of areas. One, personally advantage, but an advantage certainly for your clients and your ability to serve them and to improve outcomes on the case. And we can talk in more detail about aspects of that, but it extends from everything to understanding the scientific and medical issues that are at play, because these are fundamentally medical cases, yeah. to being able to talk to in-house colleagues who are frequently the owners of the record, are scientists and physicians, to be able to talk to them and understand their language and communicate and understand their issues. It gives you credibility internally with those same people because they feel like if they talk to you, you understand and you've been where they are. And then I think it ideally helps you translate the science and the medicine, which if you understand well, perhaps can simplify it in a way that is then accessible to others. And by that, I mean the jury or the court or whoever you're talking to who may not have that same background, but need to understand complex issues in a way that's easily accessible. So I think Tremendous value, but as I said, there's lots of lawyers in this field who are exceptional, who have no background, have taught themselves, and have done tremendously with it. And the expert piece is a big thing too, Lucas. I think a big part of all of these cases are expert witnesses and just being able to get in the room, like you said, credibility, having that background just opens up the rapport right out of the gate. And that is an essential piece. The expert piece is an essential piece of all of these cases, I think. Having the medical background, science background, and the ability to understand things really, really goes a long way when you're getting to that final point of translating things for expert witnesses and for the trial lawyers that are out there presenting to the juries. 
Yeah, I certainly agree. And we can certainly talk about that if you guys want. I'm curious, Mike, from your side. I mean, you're on the in-house side and you've been on the in-house side for quite a long time. So to what extent, as you're looking at potential counsel to handle your cases, is the expertise, the science background, whether that's medicine, science, et cetera, something you look for? And and how do you evaluate that piece? Absolutely. In-house, science is everywhere. We have research and development, medical manufacturing, even our commercial colleagues get into quasi-medical scientific issues when laying out commercial strategies and that sort of thing. So I have found it very useful over the years when engaging on those fronts to have folks like yourself, Lucas, who are well-practiced in scientific and medical issues. Yeah, it's interesting because Lucas and I work on a number of matters together. And generally, (laughs) when the client has a straight litigation question, I feel as though I get a call. But when that question veers into scientific and medical issues, Lucas gets the call, which certainly when you have a scientific question or issue, being able to call someone who has a JD, MD, or MD, JD, seems important. And I do think that ultimately, one of the ways that we've been successful as a firm is having people with science backgrounds, whether it's an MD or PhD, or just a biology or chemistry undergrad degree. So because of the scientific issues that we handle, it's important for me as a partner to make sure that at least the associates that I work with I try to find folks that actually do have a science background. What are some of the interesting cases that you've handled? I know I have a couple that you think required someone to have a science background. Yeah, look, I mean, it's been 14 years, you see, and mass torts, as we all know, there's lots of them, and I think we've all seen a lot. First case I worked on meaningfully had to do with antipsychotics and their potential relationship to diabetes. And Mm -hmm. This is 2007, 2008. So right out of law school, about three years removed from my residency. So I was still fresh in medicine. I certainly treated patients for diabetes for many years through medical school and through residency. So it was an area that was pretty near and dear to me, internal medicine, and got to a question of how many milligrams of change in blood glucose levels has an impact on a patient's actual clinical condition. And the distinction between the abstract question of hey, can a medication make some incremental change in blood glucose? And what does it really mean from a clinical perspective? Mm -hmm. That's where I started. And in the interim, there's been a lot of fascinating cases. The next one I worked on had to do with hormone therapy and breast cancer. That was a huge litigation, probably 13 years of litigation overall. I wasn't involved in all of it, but a large chunk of it that involved many of the largest manufacturers in this country and obviously a very significant healthcare issue for women and a very important clinical study that we spent a lot of time on. And since then, it's been a mix of, there's a lot of cancer issues, and those are issues that come up a lot in these cases. There's a lot of things, currently I'm working on a case involving chronic kidney disease and proton pump inhibitors, but it's a broad range of diseases. What's really cool from my perspective is the science in each case is unique. I think the last thing I will say before we see what Mike's take on it is, even as a physician, Coming into these cases, the depth that we get into the science on these specific injuries is so incredible that I frequently find that at the end of a case or well into the middle of the case, I know more about the disease state and the science as a lawyer than I did when I was a physician, which is a crazy concept, (laughs) but it is absolutely true. So maybe there's lots of other physicians who know a lot more than I do, but for me, it was eye-opening for sure. 
as a person with a non-scientific background, it was always interesting to me in every case I worked, what the heck is a signal and what is a relative risk and what's epidemiology and why is that important to the case? I think it's just easier for people who have a science background to understand those issues. Mike, what do you think? I agree. I mean, there's the basic science of it, right? The biology, the chemistry, everything that feeds into those studies, for sure. Sure. Yeah. And did you feel as though that was helpful as you ventured to read Smith as a first year and was looking at the science in those <laughs> diet drug days? Absolutely. I mean, I remember the days we would buy medical textbooks and Lucas talked about the conditions at issue in the litigation. But what always came with that was competing conditions or potential risk factors. You're really learning about an entire disease state when you dig into these cases. And it's all encompassing and extremely interesting. I do think having the background plays a big role in being able to dig in and understand things. What are some disease states that you guys have learned about while working on matters that are of interest? Heart valve disease, the fen yeah. litigation, primary pulmonary hypertension, secondary pulmonary hypertension, breast cancer, blood clots in the hormone replacement therapy litigation, hormonal contraceptives, again, venous thrombosis, DVT, pulmonary emboli, that sort of thing. What else? Tardive dyskinesia. And then what else? And then pancreatic cancer in a number of cases we were handling over at Novo for a while. So that's what's top of mind right now. Certainly some overlap there too. The pancreatic cancer, I'll just pick up on that one because I was just thinking about that and I was talking about that case just the other day with you, Ray. Yeah. That's a case where we get down to the level. And of course, everyone is listening to this. We talk about things like PDG, which are pancreatic duct glands, which I will now tell you, nobody other than supremely deeply people in the pancreatic cancer research community have any idea what that is. But there's actually an aspect of this litigation which involves discussion of that in front of the court. And that gives you a sense of how deeply you get into these disease states in a way that in the real world people just don't do unless they're serious bench and, and scientific researchers in those areas. But pancreatic cancer is certainly there. I think one of my most somewhat amusing ones was a blood thinner where the accusation was that it caused bleeding, which you would think that if you have a blood <laughs> thinner and the risk of bleeding would be pretty obvious. And another one on the device side, which recently has taken up a lot of my time, but it's fascinating. I mean, I wasn't a surgeon. I was an internal medicine physician, but we are defending claims related to hernia mesh, which is used to repair, obviously, hernias. And I now know more about the different approaches to treating abdominal and grow in hernias than I ever thought I would. And it's fascinating yep. because you're learning the surgery, you're learning the techniques, you're learning how it's done laparoscopically, how it's done open, whether you use the mesh, whether you don't, where do you put the mesh and why do you put the mesh there and what the outcomes are and how you choose it based on the patient. And we spent so much of our time, and this is a beautiful thing for me, one of the things I really enjoy about it, and it goes back to what Michael said about experts. Experts are at the heart and soul of this. So if you're having a case about... Yeah hernia repair surgery, the surgeons who do hernia repair surgery are the experts, and they are ultimately the core knowledge on this topic. And we get to work with some of the most exceptional surgeons in the world at the top medical centers. And what we get to do is we get to spend our time talking to the surgeons and have them explain to us how they do their surgical procedures so we can then help defend these cases. And example of that is we all wanted to make sure we were up to speed on the techniques, the approaches. We actually had one of our experts spend two hours to do a presentation to teach us how to do hernia repair surgery in the various approaches. Now, obviously, not teach us in the sense that we could go to the OR and do it, yeah, but teach yeah. us with videos, with all that stuff to understand exactly how it's done. 
that's incredible, but it's also critical to us being able to then analyze, evaluate cases and defend them. So it's cool. It's a huge range and it's fascinating. Yeah, I would certainly say this, Lucas, that I want to toot your horn a little bit, that your ability to take the scientific issues in a case and make it understandable for people like myself who are lay in terms of the scientific issues. I mean, clearly, I've been doing this long enough that I do understand the basic scientific issues in a case, but your ability, I think, to make sure that the regular lay person understands it is so important to what we do. And I think in part, it's your personality, obviously, but I also think that you have this bedside manner that is part of who you are with your background in your MD degree. So I do think that from that perspective, it's really helpful for the lawyers that you work with, that you do have this big science background. Well, I appreciate that, right? It's interesting, really curious on Mike's view on this, but what I think makes legal teams effective, and of course, you're talking about mass torts now, right? So you're talking about huge volumes of cases, very complex work up, a lot of work and a big team that's needed to really evaluate the case. I think the success of legal teams, and I mean that both in-house and outside counsel, not that I've been in-house, but the ability to work together, it requires diversity of experience, backgrounds, approaches, and ways of handling things. And the more diversity you have in that context, the better off you are. So I appreciate what you're saying. And I think I bring certainly that background to it. But that background needs to get reflected off people with other experiences, other backgrounds, in order to create the best set of arguments, the best way of presenting the case. And it's only when all that gets put together do you get to really the best outcome. So I think it's critical to have that diversity of views, experiences, backgrounds. Yeah. Mike, I don't know if you have thoughts on that particular issue. I agree. And that's one of the fun things about, from an in-house perspective, building out that defense team. And it's not uncommon if I'm in a product liability situation where I'm bringing together multiple attorneys from different firms. And if I have a firm that I like that's national counsel on a case and doing a great job, but they don't have that medical or scientific bench, I'll bring somebody like Lucas in or onto the case. And that often helps. And that's a model I've used in the past that I think can work extremely well. Yeah. I'm curious if there's a favorite story either one of you want to tell about handling a case. I'm not sure where to start. You know, I think my favorite trial story is when I wound up down in the Virgin Islands for a week and a half deposing <laughs> the ex-commissioner of health and another health official down there mid-trial in the middle of the winter, which was glorious. But that wasn't so much science or expert related. Well, actually, it was expert related. But anyway, that's an aside. When I think back as a young associate at Reed working on the diet drug litigation, there was a guy out in Pittsburgh, an expert cardiologist we used to do a ton of work with. And if you're familiar with these cases and how you build them, these searches often start out scouring the internet, looking for people who you think might have that right experience from an expert perspective. And we did that. And you find the expert, you never know how it's going to work out. How are they going to be in court? And you do that dance where you're feeling them out, they're feeling you out, making sure there's a good relationship and they've got the background expertise and personality you're looking for. And this particular case, we built it from the ground up. Plaintiffs' depositions, spouses, treating physicians, experts came in. IMEs, mock trial, trial, and to take things through from beginning to end. And working with the experts is a huge part of that along the way, building the case from a scientific perspective and figuring out how you're going to 
take the complex science and translate it for the jury. And you get in front of the jury, you go through six weeks of trial and 18, 20 hours of work every day, seven days a week. And then you're sitting there in the courtroom waiting. And the jury comes back in, right. gets in the box, and they've got the verdict slip in their hand. And the adrenaline, the anticipation that comes with that, it's just unrivaled, in yeah. my opinion, at least professionally. And I just think back to that one trial where we built the whole thing from the ground up with this expert out in Pittsburgh. All went really well. And we had the opportunity to interview the jurors at the end of the day, those that were willing to speak to us. And one of the themes that emerged across the board was that the expert witness was clear, presentable, well-prepared, unflappable on cross, and it really won the case. And that's a big one that sticks out in my mind in the early days of the diet drug cases in Philadelphia. Wow. How about you, Lucas? I think I have to go back also to almost the very beginning of my practice. This was back, like I said, when I was with Alston in Atlanta, and we were dealing with these antipsychotic diabetes cases, and there was an expert on the plaintiff side who I will never forget. I won't mention his name just for purposes of not exposing the guy, but <laughs> he was a case-specific expert, and he was retained by plaintiff's counsel to testify that this individual plaintiff developed diabetes solely because he took this antipsychotic medication, not his other 30 risk factors, of which there were Lots. Right. So we get in a deposition and it's at the office of the plaintiff's counsel. And over the course of the deposition, it turns out that this guy is like best buddies with the plaintiff's counsel and they go fishing together, hunting together, and they hang out all the time. And it turns out that although, yes, he certainly reviewed some of the medical records, he basically reviewed only a tiny subset of the actual records and spent 10 hours total on the entire case before he offered this opinion. So he didn't know any of the facts. He didn't know about the risk factors. He didn't know anything else. But what he kept saying, I kept asking him the question was, so how do you know that this antipsychotic medication actually caused him to develop diabetes plus all the other stuff? He keeps saying, I kid you not, over the course of the deposition 25 to 30 times, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. I just know it was the straw that broke the camel's back. It was the straw that broke the camel's back. And if you read the transcript, it's there like 20 to 30 times. And couple of funny things out of that was I remember this guy today and all my friends who were involved in that litigation remember him as the straw that broke the camel's back guy. In fact, we ended up, when we won the case, getting these glass plaques with a cartoon of a straw lying in the sand and being broken. It's like, finally, we found the straw that broke the camel's back. And we had that as kind of a celebration of the thing. But the funniest thing about it was, so after this guy goes to his deposition where it's clear he didn't do any work, he didn't know what the case was about, couldn't explain his opinion. He walks up to me afterwards and says, great job on the deposition. Here's my card if you ever need an expert. <laughs> but that does bring up a good point, Lucas, and, and something we've been talking a lot about building the case affirmatively when working with experts. But on the other side, we need to cross-examine experts. And if you can't get into the science and you're not able to dig in really at that granular level, I think you're handicapped a little bit. And it's not to say you need a scientific degree to do it, but absolutely, if you're in these cases working on causation of cancer, for example, you need to be able to be adept and agile with the science when you're going into these expert depositions or even trial on cross, since that's another big point I don't think that we got into too much yet. I completely agree with that, Mike. Being self-aware is so important. I consistently defer to my partners who have scientific backgrounds on expert workup and expert depositions, I can take the plaintiff's deposition, I can take the treating doctor's depositions or defend, but taking an expert deposition, why would I put myself in front of a Lucas or others that you have on your team that have those degrees and can actually go toe-to-toe -to -toe 
with these experts. Not that, as you said, and as Lucas said, someone without a scientific background can't do it. But if you have someone there who has that background, why would you not use them for that? I know that we're at the end of this. It was fun talking to you guys. I mean, listen, I got into the farmer work, I said earlier, because a partner asked me to do it, and as long as it was litigation. But over the 30 years, I've actually become really passionate about defending pharma companies. When you think about the industry, there's really no other industry like it. Folks in the pharma industry, medical device industry, save lives, prolong lives, and actually make lives better. So it's a privilege to work on matters with you, Lucas, and you, Mike, and to defend matters for pharmaceutical and medical device companies. Thanks, Ray. I'll echo one thing, which is I think that in our society, lawyers get a bad name, and some of that's well-deserved. Some of that is obviously not. But I do think one thing you touched on is really important, particularly in the life sciences field, not to eliminate others. You're helping both in-house and outside counsel, these companies that are really revolutionizing healthcare. The advances that we've seen in medicine and healthcare over the last 10 years, I don't even need to go further, last five years, are so dramatic, so revolutionary. And we've seen that with the COVID vaccine and how fast they came out, but we see it in medical devices. We see it in genetic therapies that are being implemented. We are close to revolutionizing some things that we thought for Decades in medicine are not doable. We are looking at ways to treat Alzheimer's. Incredible stuff that's happening, and it's driven by companies like Jazz, but across this industry that are really exploring the edges of science in a way that's revolutionizing and helping patients. Being able to support that and help that in our roles, I think, is incredible, and it's a good reason to be happy when you go to bed. Yeah. So, at any rate, thanks for jumping on with me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Ray. All right. Thanks, Ray. Thank you for listening to DLA Piper's at the Intersection of Science and Law podcast. All information, content, and materials contained in this podcast are for general informational purposes only. This podcast is intended to be a general overview of the subjects discussed and does not create a lawyer-client relationship. Statements and opinions are those of the individual speakers and participants and do not necessarily reflect the policies or opinions of DLA Piper LLP U.S., The information contained in this podcast is not and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice. No listener should act or refrain from acting with respect to any particular legal matter on the basis of this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. This podcast may qualify as lawyer advertising, requiring notice in some jurisdictions. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. DLA Piper LLP US accepts no responsibility for any actions taken or not taken as a result of this podcast.